What is up, crew? Welcome to another Clover Tech podcast, November the 1st, 2021. Going to be uh, bringing our, our guest here shortly before we get to that, though. Uh, as always, special shout out and thanks to the Patreon patrons, the YouTube channel members, those that super chat, super thanks. Uh, and of course, shop the store over at clovertech.com slash shop. Uh, still some green and blue uh, caps over there available if anybody is interested. Uh, as far as asking those questions, well, uh, you can do that one of two ways. The first ways cost you nothing. Uh, that is the top D at symbol CloverTac, all one word at CloverTac. If you have questions for our guests moving forward, and alternatively, you can throw down uh, a super chat if you so wish. And if you do, we appreciate that, of course. Uh, we do have a poll going over there since we are going to be talking a little bit about firearm history, I'm sure today. Uh, is what type of firearm history do you find most interesting? Uh, 20th century, 19th century, 18th, or other so it'd be interesting to see already 15 votes in that poll which is pretty crazy more uh votes in the poll and we've got people watching i don't know uh i don't know if uh what's going on with that somebody's uh stuff in the ballot box but uh we'll check on that toward the end of the podcast and see how that shapes up it'll be uh be interesting to see where people fall on that uh on that scale so without further ado let's bring in miss ashley our guest today uh, also known as uh History in Heels over on the IGs and Instagrams. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing good. How are you? I am well. So I want to I want to kick this off. I guess uh, we officially met. I guess over at the uh, AmCon uh, up in the DFW area a few weeks back. And was that your first AmCon? I know I haven't seen you at any of the previous ones. Yeah, no, that was my first AMCON. You know, it's weird because I, you know, a lot of people think that I'm a part of the gun world and I am a part of the gun world, but I always kind of feel a little tangential to it. So there were lots of industry things that I have no idea are happening uh, <laughs> unless somebody tells me. And so Cheryl Todd was awesome and invited me to come speak. And so now I will be back. Well, I know after that, uh, it, and hopefully we'll get into all of this a little bit later, but I know that... Um, I pulled up some of your testimony in front of the Senate and I thought it was amazing that some of the bombs you dropped, it was pretty awesome. But you know, for what you talk about being a part of the, the community, I totally get it. Everything is kind of broken up right into its little sections and I'm in an interesting position. That's why this podcast is like, okay, we talk to people in the industry and community because one week I'll have, an advocate or an activist own and then the next it may be some type of manufacturer you never know right and we're all parts and pieces of this really big pie that we need everybody we need all those components right <laughs> but yet some that doesn't know that others exist and it's it's a crazy world it's a crazy community for sure it really is. Oh, you know I think the word silos is what we used to use in the museum <laughs> the museum world. So, uh, so with that, let's. I want to dive into a little bit of uh, a little bit of your history, because I know when we were at the uh, the dinner after AmCon, it was it was interesting. I found it interesting, and you didn't go into grave detail uh, as far as your education. First of all, how did you decide that's kind of what you wanted to do? Was the firearm history side of things, and then the formal education in those areas? What was that that process, and what all did you go through? 
Oh God. Um, so I did not grow up around guns. Um, I I'm from Pennsylvania, I'm from Pittsburgh. So a lot of people assume that I would have, but I did not. Uh, my parents' hobbies were golf and my mom was a professional figure skater and a physics teacher. So it just wasn't really a part of, you know, my culture growing up. And so I spent most of my childhood wanting to be a doctor. I've had over 10 orthopedic surgeries. I was in a wheelchair for a little bit in middle school. Um, and so for me, I just wanted to go into medicine medicine. And in high school, I shadowed a surgeon in and out of the OR. I volunteered at an ER. And I was always interested in the history of medicine. And that's what led me to firearms. Uh, I always joke, I was doing an interview with Ted Koppel a couple of years ago. And off camera, he asked me this question. And I gave a very similar answer. answer. And on camera, he interrupted me and said, so you went from wanting to save lives to things that take them. Mm, <laughs> yeah, <ooh>. right? <laughs> mm. um, actually, he was a really, he was a great guy uh, off camera, but it was just kind of funny how, how that got spun. <laughs> now, <laughs> now I'm curious to interrupt the story. Where my mind went with that was, what did mom and dad say? What did oh, they think when you shifted like that? Well, I saw like in the that? beginning of this that I'm not allowed to swear, so um, I can't say exactly what my mom said. <laughs> uh, but so I, when I went to college, I was going uh, more of a pre-med route. In the, I was going a science route, and I uh, switched my major to history within my first uh, year uh, when I was a freshman in college. And my mom, again, physics teacher, was, told me that I better have an effing job when I graduate because <laughs> right. history majors don't have a great track record <laughs> right. of that. So I, I ended up, I, I switched over studying kind of the history of medicine and battlefield medicine specifically. And so I did a very high level version of ballistics and how uh, different weapons technologies and munition technologies changed over time and how that affected medical wow. technology on the battlefield. And then I got my first internship after my freshman year, I think. And that was at Soldiers and Sailors a uh, military museum in Pittsburgh. It's in Oakland. And um, they basically put 200 guns in front of me and said, go. <laughs> wow. I had to identify what they were, what had been modified. And that was civil war through modern day military. And uh, I literally never held a gun before in my life at that point. I just started kind of researching them on my own. And that was really kind of the beginning of a very, very fast education in firearms. As like I said, I didn't grow up around them. So I really started at zero, uh, moved a lot very quickly that summer. And then I um, started studying it uh, as an undergraduate, moved on to graduate school, studying firearms history. And then I also took a lot of firearms instructor courses. Uh, I took my basic pistol, like the first semester I started studying firearms and basically at this point have shot pretty much every type of historic firearm. <laughs> Probably ever made. Right. We've got uh, our attacking daughters out there. Says history degree here. He says, uh, your mom was right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so the, so when you went into, you said you went into the, the battlefield medical thing and then they taught ballistics with that. Uh, high, so high level is where I studied. I'm in, not a scientist. I did not finish that degree. Um, but no, what I what I mean by that is this is an example I usually use. So I grew up three hours from Gettysburg, and I was on a Civil War medicine tour that the National Park Service was doing, and they talked about how the development of the minier ball, which some people call a mini ball, which is the first successfully adopted uh, conically shaped projectile and how a conically shaped projectile affected 
bone uh, when it impacted it rather than the round musket balls uh, during the revolution and, and prior to the mid 1800s. And so that's kind of where I started with it um, is, you know, different ammo. It's actually really interesting because one thing I don't often get asked questions about or talk about that it's equally as important as ammunition history. Um, and so I really started from that perspective because, you know, the weapons technology or firearms technology, if it's off the battlefield um, technology, you know, advances and it does have a, an impact on battlefield medicine, but you know, certainly great developments in ammunition play a big role in that, um, that doesn't get talked about that often. Right. Now, uh, Calaveras out there, uh, this is, this always comes up with every guest, but favorite historical firearm. Do you have one? I honestly have a different one. I feel like every time I get asked this question, <laughs> um, but I've been using this one for a while and I, I have to admit that I think I stole it from Danny, who's now the curator of Cody, but uh, the Burton light machine rifle is a really uh, interesting historical piece. If you're familiar with battlefield one, it's in that game, um, but used inaccurately, there was like a, weird urban legend that the this gun was used for uh like knock like shooting down like balloons i it's not that's not a real thing um but the burton light machine rifle is a uh selective fire twin top magazine single soldier portable uh or gun that was made uh i think like developed it was developed towards the end of world war one I. I might have the year wrong it was like 1916 or 1917 by a guy named frank burton uh, frank burton was the son of uh, james burton who actually interestingly enough uh was the person that modified uh claude etienne minier's development of the kind of cliche projectile he modified it at harper's ferry and that's what ended up being used in the american military and so burton was a big part of firearms design history. He worked for Winchester. And so he developed this gun um, towards the end of World War One. The only known examples at the Cody Firearms Museum, because as a lot of, uh, if you know your firearms history, when innovation kind of happens towards the end of the war, it doesn't always uh, take off. And so this was one of those. And then Burton also developed an intermediate cartridge for the gun uh, as well, which was pretty a pretty big deal. Uh, and I like it because when we talk about, you know, the Sturmgewehr, um, you know, and, and other guns beyond that, that, you know, meet the criteria for the dreaded assault rifle term, which you heard about on AMCON, uh, you know, I like it because it's decades prior and there are other uh, technologies that are even earlier than that, that uh, meet that criteria. But it's just pretty fascinating that that technology was there uh, by the end of World War One. It just wasn't really utilized until the time you get to World War Two. And you think about it, it's pretty impressive because when we went to war uh, in World War One, we were rock and rolling blocks. And bold action. So that's pretty impressive. <laughs> By right. the end of the war, that's where we ended up. Right. A lot of 30, 40 Craig and stuff like that around that uh, that time frame. I see that someone says last video game I played was Super Mario. Me yeah. too. Me too. I beat the <laughs> right. Nintendo 64. Uh, Mario Kart was my jam. My, my stepdaughter used to make me play Mario Kart with... Um, Oh, app. Oh my God. I don't even know what it's called. The Wii. The, the oh, Wii. oh yeah. The Wii. Well, I was yeah. terrible at it. Yeah. So I feel you. That's, I don't play those games. I've just heard, I've heard rumors. I've played, my kids had growing up the Wii and then the PlayStation 2, I believe. So I had my, Atari. My, well, I had that. And then I had the regular Nintendo and the Super Nintendo back in the day. Yeah. But, and then the Sega Genesis. I think that was probably the last growing up that I had. Uh, and then I didn't play anything until I had kids, and they were on the Wii and the PlayStation 2. But my experience with the Le Wii 
and the PlayStation 2 is the Archery with Wii. I loved that. That was amazing. Uh, and the uh, and Rock Band, the Guitar Hero and the Rock Band with PlayStation 2. Those were my my jams with those. But yeah, the modern games, I, I just can't get into them, unfortunately. I know a lot of people are, uh, but I just can't. Um, so going back to, th- this is interesting, when you were talking about you talk so fast and, and about oh, so sorry. much, so much stuff. No, it's fine because that speaks to, that's what's interesting. That speaks to your knowledge base uh, on a lot of this stuff. And what I was going to say is the, the testimony that you did in front of, I guess it was the Senate back earlier part of this year. Yeah, man. Um, that's what was, what was kind of so impressive was all of these bombs you kept dropping on them. It was crazy. Uh, and you talked a lot about, the innovation and how people are scared at innovation nowadays when they it's that type of stuff has existed for so long. Right. Yeah. And that's something I've done a lot with um, even expert testimony on um, some of the more recent uh, second amendment cases, uh, especially the ones in California. I've been doing a lot in California is when it comes down to it. Uh, and this is what I said in the Senate. I mean, I wrote, I wrote again, in case you haven't read it, I wrote a 20-page report uh, that was submitted the day before that testimony. They only give you five minutes. So the fact that I can talk fast was uh, to my advantage. But when I was going into the Senate, it was uh, kind of a stacked house in terms of, you know, pro-gun versus, uh, sorry, stacked towards uh, gun control. Um, there was only uh, it was Senator Cruz and then two other Republicans, but then they all left and left Senator Lee. So he was the only <laughs> Republican in the room. Um, and, and a lot of my work as a historian is really not to pick sides on the matter. And so my scholarship and the people that have invited me to come speak, it focuses more on the fact that what is being proposed or what has been enacted in the past is often built on faulty logic. Um, So one example that you see a lot in modern legislation is the term unusually dangerous uh, and common use, which is what a lot of people, you know, talk about with the Heller decision, but it was is really old terminology that gets used, but so that gets used as a rationale for why you can regulate certain things. But what happens with those regulations are that they don't understand the history, the people who are writing them, a lot of people, and that's kind of everybody. A lot of people don't know this history because it's not that, um, it's not that out there. But um, when you put those as your gold standard for why you're making your argument, and then you come back and learn that those arguments are flawed because those technologies have been around for a really long time. You know, that's kind of where I'm at. And and if you saw my testimony, I, you know, I basically said, you know, no matter where you're falling on the subject matter, if you're building things on faulty logic, whether it's intentional or not, you know, you're, you know, well, one, you're misleading your constituency and you're possibly opening people up to feel like more is being done than is actually being done, you know, with like the assault weapons bans that have happened across the, you know, federally and at state level. I mean, they're, they say that they ban something, but they really don't. Um, and with the whole, I was there speaking towards privately made firearms or the, it was called the, you know, stop ghost guns or something, you know, and part of that was because I'm like, you're not stopping anything you know it's it's a misleading title it's a marketing it's it's for rhetoric um and so my point is always actually very boring which is you know if you're going to build up an argument make sure you understand the background behind that argument or else somebody's going to poke holes in it down the road right um i want to chase that a minute to to make sure that maybe people understand exactly what what you just said (laughs) because there were i think there will be people 
that live in states that have these assault weapons bans that would disagree. Now, are, are what you're saying is because you can still have the firearm, it's just not in the same configuration that the law really doesn't, right, because it's you still have the firearm, but because it's just featureless, the firearm still exists in that state. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. So this, as I worked on the California, I was an expert on the California case. Um, so there's a lot that can be, <laughs> that can be unpacked there. Sure. Um, but you know, one of the things that I, when I was being deposed, I, I said is that, you know, none of the regulated features um, under the, under the ban change the firearm, you know, it's still a semi-automatic, you know, it's still a center fire gun. It's just can't have certain features, but you did these features don't change it. You know, it doesn't make it an automatic. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's, well, they use, I use largely cosmetic because we, you know, it's pistol grips, it's folding stocks, right. um, you know, and so when I say that it's, it's not really banning anything, it's more um, to the community that thinks it is. It's a um, signal. Is that kind of what yeah. you're getting? You're, there's yeah, the technology is still available. Um, you know, and one thing that's always really weird to me and all of the assault weapons bans uh, across the board are they usually permit one of those features, but not uh, the, any others. And so <laughs> right. what, so like Lies what, and I said this, I think in my deposition, I said, I'm like, what, how do you, like, why is one okay in this circumstance, but then not in the other, if you're arguing that these things are unusually dangerous. And so yeah, yeah we could talk about this all day if you want, but right. it's, it's, no, it's, I mean, I get you. That is kind of a conundrum, right? It's like, yeah. if you can have one, but you can only have one because if you have yeah. more than one. Yeah. And it well, doesn't matter which one you have, right? We started on the federal ban where they, uh, uh, where bayonet yeah. lugs were on there. Like, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We, yeah. Danny and I, the yeah. uh, current curator, Cody, my former assistant, we have a podcast called History Unloaded. And we were just talking about that. Uh, Danny had a gripe about why does everyone keep going after bayonet lugs? Uh, if we're talking about bayonet lugs and things that were around during the founding fathers, then. Yeah, I've got to. I've got to think. I don't know the history of bayonets. I know we got some folks out there like G Webs in the chat that is into bayonets and stuff. But I've got to think bayonets have been around since firearms 1600s, themselves. Sixteen hundreds, right? I think, is one of the earliest pieces. Yeah. They they uh, created a firearm and they that. said they said, "Hey, we got to put a blade on this somehow." Immediately after they produced yeah. it, you got well, to. When they initially stuck the blade down the barrel, which when you think about it, it's not great, um, which is why they ended up putting it, you know, on the side of the barrel. But the, the, actually, I said hunting, and, and that points out another part of a lot of these uh, rhetorical terms that you hear, um, which is weapons of war. Um, and a lot of the logic and rationale behind a lot of these laws are civilians shouldn't have, quote unquote, weapons of war. Um, but if you look at the history of firearms technology, civilians have always uh, had the better technology. Always. Um, this stuff has always popped up. You know, you could not, the, the military couldn't afford repeaters on the battlefield or couldn't put them to use with their tactics. But repeating technology has been around since at least the 1400s. Um, you know, gas sealed guns were around, you know, in the 1500s, 1600s, magazine fed repeaters were around in the 1600s. And so uh, when you actually look at that, um, if you are being historically accurate in the statement of weapons of war, then it means that civilians should have better guns right. uh, if you're if you're going off the history right. so uh, the, yeah. the marketing terms that get used are always very odd to me because they they do they fly in the face of a lot of that history and actually i joke a lot because people in our community try to tear down those um those phrases with their rationales for why and they're also justified but i'm like all you have to say is that you know if you go historically speaking then we should have better technology and it completely neutralizes you know that that marketing slogan that people are using Right. 
Uh, let's lock out a couple of questions here. Mr. Roboto, uh, earliest night vision uh, range finders. Do you know anything about the history on those? Um, not a ton, um, but I do know that the Cody Museum has an early, I think it's 1940s um, gun. I, it's like the T3 carbine. Um, I think that's got, uh, it, it's, it's before the one that everybody knows about with Vietnam. So I think it's forties, maybe early fifties. So um, pre, pre starlight. That was the starlight. Uh, yeah. Right? Pre starlight. That was it. Um, and it's, it's crazy looking to me, <laughs> to be honest, it's this giant thing on this, like essentially an M1. And I'm um, guessing, and I'm guessing it, it was yeah, like straight Ghostbusters right. style, you know? Yeah, uh, but that's, that's, that's the earliest that I know about. I'm sure that, you know, there are lots of things that people could tell me about them, but I know that we have one in the collection. And so I did a bit of minimal research to understand kind of that lineage. And that was one of the early ones, at least in the United States. Right. The biggest issue, I think, in the early days of all that was battery tech more than anything. The battery, I mean, you had to have a cart to pull around the battery on a lot of that stuff. Yeah, um, it's. It's crazy. It, I, I, it just cracks me up. It's so unbalanced, but hey, you know what? You got to start somewhere, don't you? <laughs> right. Uh, Ed West is following up out there. Uh, what you were talking about with the uh, with the bands and stuff. He says the function function of the gun is still the same: barrel chamber, cartridge, trigger, uh, which makes a lot of sense. Now, G Web's got a question. He says, uh, "Do you think that your testimony was absorbed by the representatives in the room when you spoke?" Uh, or if it was even possible to know that. So what what did you get? How did how did the room feel to you? Well, I um, I know that the Republicans um, to some extent absorbed it because, and, and this is not me by any means taking a pot shot, but it was kind of funny because you I wrote my five minute testimony out because you know I tend to riff. And when I riff, it can be long and I didn't want to not be able to say what I needed to say. And um, all the Republicans opening statements used my examples that were in my five minute testimony. So I'm sitting there just like crossing out things because I didn't want them to think I was parroting them. But they were actually uh, they were actually parroting my talking points from the report they got the day before. Uh, the one thing that I will say, and I don't know post what I had to say, if it had any impact, but um, believe it or not, the only politician that was in that room that even spoke to me uh, both before and after was Senator Blumenthal. Wow. And um, he came up to me before uh, the testimony and I uh, said he actually really appreciated uh, my report and that he had read it and found it really interesting um, and gave me a fist bump. <laughs> because <laughs> that's, that's what they do on the Hill right now. And um, then if you've seen my testimony, you know, he kind of went after me a little bit. Um, and what was funny about like before I was all like, check me out. And then like, as it was starting, I'm like, I feel like this is a fake out. But, um, but so he and I had a back and forth, uh, which was quite fun. I actually, I don't know why he did it. Um, I think he thought he could get me, but he didn't. Um, so that was fun for me. I was really happy because I thought nobody was going to ask me questions because the way that the, uh, these testimonies work is you've got five minutes and then you're not allowed to say anything unless someone addresses you directly. And right. since there was only one Republican in the room, there was no way that, you know, Senator Feinstein was going to ask me any questions or any of the other people in the room were going to ask me questions. And so, um, because it was such a small group, Senator Blumenthal allowed everyone to go back around with questions and he chose to, uh, ask me questions and I don't think it ended too well for him. But um, I, I was surprised because after 
I was finished after we were all finished. She came up and thanked me again for my testimony and found it really interesting and walked, you know, fist bumped me again <laughs> and, right. and left. So, I mean, do I think, I mean, obviously he just proposed something else on the floor. I mean, but the fact <laughs> that he read it, I mean, that and, and, and came up and spoke to me, I mean, he didn't have to do that. Well, um, so that was actually surprising that nobody else came up and talked to me, but yeah. he took the time to come and speak to me twice when he didn't really speak to the other, um, the other people too much. Right. And if nothing else in that situation, we know that he knows. Right. And that that means something that helps us out to know that he knows, because you've got a lot of ignorant politicians that do things blindly. They just go along with whatever the party says or whatever um, the trend is or whatever it might be. And, you know, at least we know at this point that, you know, if he you know, he did read it, he you know, he has the information there, whether or not he believes it. you know, and wants to do something contrary to it. Well, that's a, uh, that's a different thing, I think. Well, um, and I know he read it based on the questions he gave me because he right. actually pointed out a stat that I had listed wrong, uh, which I didn't have my report in front of me um, because I literally found out Friday that I was going and testifying. <laughs> I was told the report was due Monday at 5 p.m. Um, the Tuesday was the testimony and I found out, um, midday Saturday when I had decided not to work too much on the report that it was due bright and early Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And I was flying on, I was flying on Saturday or Sunday. And so I wrote most of the report. Um, I, I wrote the report before I left and I wrote the footnotes, uh, on the plane and I may or may not have I've had a glass of wine. Uh, so he actually knew that I had a stat, um, not it was right it's just i had the wrong word associated with it um and i'm a little sad because had i had it in front of me i could have you know the argument was my point was still the same um i just used the wrong word so i know he read it because he was able to come up with that one little thing you know in a 20-page report um and and so i i I knew that and maybe that's why he he was so nice to me because he thought he could get me um but i was just like i don't know i'll look at it and i'll get back to you but, right. <laughs> but it was fun. I love going back and forth with people like that, um, whether they agree with me or not. It's always fun to me. Let's see. We've got another one from G Webs here. He says, in your point of view, said what parts of firearm history are the least researched and or represented? All of it. <laughs> Probably nowadays. Um, so, so you asked about, and I'll, I'll actually answer, but um, you asked about my educational background. Um, and so in my field, um, I have a master's degree and that's not even considered acceptable in the academic community. If I truly want to be a full academic, I'm supposed to have a PhD, um, even better, a PhD in academic history and not public history. Um, but the middle ground for me is because there, there, there are no programs in the country for you to study firearms or weapons history. Um, you can do military history, but that's about as close as you can get. In Europe, there are programs. Um, ironically, in countries where there uh, is less of a quote-unquote gun culture, uh, mm-hmm. studying firearms is far less stigmatized, which is a really interesting um, topic. But because there aren't programs for it, you end up having to kind of, I did a lot of independent studies. I worked with a military historian, and then I did independent studies on different things in, in firearms history. And I ran up against a lot of resistance in some of the things that I wanted to study. So when it comes to traditional academic scholarship with firearms, it's just not 
there much. Or if it's there, it's political history, uh, a lot of Second Amendment scholarship that's true academic scholarship. Uh, but, you know, there's just not a lot out there. And so as a result, there's been a void filled by really amazing scholars. Gun collectors are the ones who publish, I feel like, more books. Um, and then there's uh, online, like YouTube, uh, you know, CN Arsenal, uh, Forgotten Weapons. They're doing some of the best scholarship out there, but they're not considered traditionally academic. And so the academic community doesn't, you know, respect that. Um, and it's, so the, this thing happens where, you know, there's really great scholarship going on in the non-traditional sector, but if there's no peer review, how do you know what's good? And how do you know what's bad? And then what happens on the other side, which has peer review systems put into place, if you don't have any peers, how can it be reviewed properly? And a great example of that is um, there was a book called Arming America uh, years ago that was an academic work. It was a dissertation, a book based off of someone's dissertation, uh, Michael Belial. I think I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but I don't care. Um, and he won the Bancroft for that book. That Bancroft was is one of the top awards that you can get. And he it was the first time in the history of the Bancroft it was rescinded because uh, I think it was the NRA, maybe it was somebody else in the gun community, really challenged the footnotes and the arguments. And they went through the footnotes and they learned that there weren't sources for what he was talking about. Out, and that when they when they when the um, review boards pushed him to produce the the scholarship, he said like burned in a fire or flood. I can't remember which which you know which apocalypse scenario happened. Um, and so you know there. It, but then I also knew who was on this dissertation uh, review board uh, was a professor at Delaware, and she's a brilliant scholar, but she's not a firearm scholar. So if you don't have peers, peer review has a lot of problems. And then if you have works being done in the non-traditional sector, then how do you know what's good and what's not good? And so you get this weird thing, which is why I say most history really hasn't been studied um, very well. Uh, but then, the, you know, in Europe, you get a lot of early history. I would say early history is probably the most researched because even if you're not a gun person, there's a weird justification in your mind that if it's pre, you know, 20th century, that it's acceptable for study. Um, and so, Maybe mid 20th century that's non-military is probably pretty, pretty unstudied. But then, as I say that, I know that there's Armament Research Services who does a lot of that stuff as well. So a lot of people do a lot of individual things, but there's not a lot linking them to larger narratives. Um, so a lot of the gun collectors, a lot of the uh, individual scientific researchers focus on like one specific type of gun, but they don't make connections, which is kind of where, you know, I fall into the area. Like I know a lot about guns, but I'm not by any stretch of the imagination, a technical researcher in any one particular gun. I'm there to draw the lines uh, based on other people's scholarship. So right, right. it's it's tough because it's just not there. Um, and then I also use that as a disclaimer when I do talk to politicians, because politicians rely on their researchers to provide information and background for their policy. And if the research isn't there um, or they're only using um, academic research that's inherently flawed when it comes to the technology side of things, you know, they're not going to be able to have they have no tools to provide their bosses with the tools, which is kind of a pain in the butt. Right. Um so I'm going to follow up on that before we move to a couple of other questions. By the way, uh, check out the poll out there if you're joining us live. Thank you for that. Uh, check out the poll. Vote in the poll. We'll uh, announce the uh, results of that here later. Uh, and be sure to tag me, Super Chat, whatever, uh, with those questions. Keep them coming, and, and we'll ask them. I'm going to follow up on the um, what you have asked there, which I'm going to have to paraphrase that question that you just sort of answered because I don't remember what it was. It was basically, are there any parts of history that sort of get overlooked and left out? Um, so it, as, as you've 
went through what you do with firearm history, um, and then you've kind of related that to modern culture and society, the, the modern gun community at large. Do you find that younger people are not as hip on knowing the history or do does people maybe gravitate more to history the longer they're a firearm owner is there any correlations there with that people wanting to know more about the history you think um i would say that the younger generation is actually far more uh interested in in some parts of the history um i know that's probably sounds really weird but uh video game video gamers can walk into the any firearms museum and tell you a lot more about the specs on a gun than a lot of people. Um, and there's been a lot of um, interest in studying the primary source material more than before. And in my generation, there's been a lot more on backing up uh, all of your assertions with actual primary and historical sources, whereas in the past, and this is me by no means, you know, invalidating any one particular person, but one thing that, you know, especially when we were researching the Cody Museum was there's a lot of understood history that I hear from, you know, people who are sometimes of the middle age to older persuasion that when you actually go in uh, and dive deeper into the primary source material from that time period, it's not true. Um, so it's like, it's telephone, you know, so it got passed and passed and passed and passed and passed. And then we had the uncomfortable position of telling a lot of people that those stories aren't accurate. Um, and so while I think there's a, a lot of passion about history, you know, across age demographics, I've seen a, a real movement of people, especially with the ability to be online, uh, through Patreon and other ways to, you know, get funding. They have they're not sitting in graduate school necessarily, you know, having to deal with bureaucracy or they're not sitting in a museum having to deal with bureaucracy. They're able to really dive into research that we don't have time to do. And so I've noticed a lot of a lot of the newer scholars are finding all kinds of stuff that we had no idea was the case. I mean, one of the big ones, I think it was CN Arsenal, is the fact that trench shotguns during World War One, which there have been books written about how important they were and the actual order forms and the messaging from the government does not uh, corroborate that it was as big of a deal as we've been saying that it was, you know? So I think that you know, there's a lot of awesome potential with the ways that people, you know, get information and the ways that they're coming into, into those worlds through video games and through, I mean, new gun ownership is you know, a fascinating case study. I'm not an anthropologist. I know one though, that's been studying this and uh, you know, the, just the different demographics of people who are buying guns and interested in guns, I think are providing a lot of uh, diverse opinions and, and background on it. So I would say that they're getting into it earlier and doing deeper research because they've got more at their fingertips and right. you know they've got the ability to, you know, have, and a lot of them have time to be able to go and do that. Um, they're not bound by some of the things that people who choose traditional routes like me are bound by. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's jump back here. Uh, Tyler out there has one said, did uh, Francophone countries have a, particular obsession with high capacity revolvers the examples i see of such revolvers tend to be from france and belgium so do you know anything about that area of uh things i i think i think that i had never thought about it <laughs> like that um but you're not wrong uh there's a lot of repeating technology that is popular pretty much anywhere uh, in europe the 
I, I sometimes jokingly say a uh, not popular thing, which is that a lot of American firearms ingenuity is based on French, British, Belgian designs. Um, you know, bold actions oversees the the drives a needle gun you know and then we modify it for our own purposes in the united states which creates iconic brands and so there are you're right there are a lot of um, repeating technologies overseas uh, especially in the revolver world because the uh, there are revolvers that exist that predate cold um by centuries to some extent and so i don't know in the high capacity if we're talking 10 rounds or more if we're just talking about it in as many rounds as they could fit but yeah there are a right. lot of uh, weird pinfire guns that the French had. Uh, there are several patents of like harmonica guns. So I think their their desire for repeating technology went beyond just the revolver. Um, Semi-automatics kind of changed the game in that respect. Um, but I think that in those cases, they also had very wealthy patrons um, who were kind of driving that innovation um, by the 1600s the in the middle class in France. I mean, there were people with estate sales that had hundreds of firearms. Um, so there was just a lot of gun ownership uh, early on in French history and British history. Uh, there were, but I, I'm trying to think of the technologies back then because I usually only talk about Europe. Uh, and so there were just a lot of gun owners during that time period and they had money or the, when the middle class emerged, they had the ability to acquire what they wanted. And so it was uh, it was an opportunity of the you know people who had leisure culture um, than it was a necessity for the government. So uh, I'd have to look and see if they were particularly obsessed, but they definitely had some some pretty impressive repeaters very early on. Now, could some of that be contributed just because of the the technology and manufacturing stuff like that that they had at the time that the United States and the and the colonies being you know, an early country and kind of a, a a territory type thing, just kind of getting its its feet wet. Those countries were older and more established, so they yeah. had kind of more technology and manufacturing to make that happen. Um, yeah, I mean, they had more people, more money, more uh, time, right. more ability. Uh, and so when you do see things like a good example of a technology that didn't really take off in the United States or the colonies, sorry, um, because of you know, limitations in their ability to repair it uh, and maintain it was the wheel lock, which is um, developed in the, oh, I can't remember the year. I, I always say 1509, but I think it's because I merged the, it's early, it's first decade of the 1500s. Um, and it's uh, a firearm that operates off a spinning serrated disc um, where you have a piece of pyrite in um, jaws of a cocking mechanism and the pyrite sits um, in a pan where the serrated disc is exposed and you turn it uh, with a wrench or a key and so that causes a spark it's like a big lighter uh causes a spark um, and fires a gun so it allows for internal combustion for the first time um really in, in firearms history and it was wonderful and it was utilized on the battlefield in europe um it was very very popular in the civilian market even up through the 1800s uh, in the hunting circles but it wasn't feasible in the United States, or sorry, I keep saying United States colonies. It wasn't feasible in the colonies um, because you did. You had these pockets of people, and yeah, they owned a lot of they owned a lot of firepower. Um, but in terms of the wheel lock, they didn't have a lot of people that were specialized in repairing it, and it was expensive. So they were better off, especially when they first came over with match locks um, and sticking with that like tried and true technology. Although there were a lot of problems with match locks, but that was you know the the wheel lock was the new sexy cool thing that people weren't necessarily willing to spend all their money and training on. So it was much easier to have a flint lock, and then when the um, or sorry a match lock. And 
And then when different flintlock technologies uh, came about, you know, a century later, then they were able to switch over to that um, when they had the ability for that. So there's, you do see that difference of it's around, but it can't really be applied uh, in, a, in a budding new country. Right. Uh, Calaveras out there following up on the uh, uh, wheel locks. I guess this is one of those maybe miss that he's trying to uh, dispel. But whatever he says, did uh, wheel yeah. locks really require watchmakers to produce? <sighs> I don't know, honestly. <laughs> uh, that's what everybody always says. I think I've said it before, but it's uh, and the technology is not exactly the same. The same, um, although like I don't know how a watch completely works. Um, but it, it took whether it was a watchmaker uh, or somebody else, it took a more specialized um, approach to the design. So. Do I? I don't know it for sure. I, I bet I could find the answer. I'm sure a right. lot of people overseas they do a lot more studying on that. Uh, but it did take a more refined ability, um, which you didn't necessarily have in the colonies. But a watchmaker, I'm not 100 sure. Even though I'm sure you guys can pull videos of me from like 10 years ago saying it, saying it. So <laughs> right. right. It sounds like uh, you've probably forgotten more than most people know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's one of the things you cringe when we researched the museum was finding out all of these things that have been kind of passed down through the years, uh, finding out that it's not true and that you definitely, you know, contributed to the, per <laughs> the perpetuation of that mythology. Well, uh, those are pretty mortifying moments for Danny and I. <laughs> well, and I, I watched a, I forgot what I was watching the other day. And I watch more non-farm related stuff on YouTube than I do farm related, but I was watching something and it had to do with science and it, it got into kind of what you, you're talking about with citing the sources and everything else. And it was talking about a lot of the urban legends or myths, right. That were eventually disproven by science, but people still believe today because it's just, that was common knowledge for so long. Right. And I'm doing air quotes for the pod, audio podcast people. That was common knowledge for so long. And then it was debunked and, that never gained the traction that it did for common knowledge. So people just believe those things exist. So, um, you know, I can see that applying directly to what you do in history in the firearm world as well. We always, uh, we, we learned so much about what people believed was true when we renovated the museum, because um, I think Danny keeps like a running list of, all of the things that get said to us in the museum about things that are that people understand are true, like something about there was something about a single action that I had heard uh, that I had never heard of before. But somebody uh, was I can't even remember what it was, but they were making an argument for the four positions of the hammer um, and some like acronym maybe i don't even remember but danny you know texted me and was like what is this and i'm like i have never heard of this before in my life and i work i'm an expert uh witness on uh single action cases so i was like so it's news to me <laughs> maybe it's thing but i have no idea right. so we've got um got some questions here going in kind of a different path uh start with g23 he says have you ever read the book glock rise of america's gun uh, I read parts of it, um, but it was a long time ago. Uh, I remember like specifically being excited about the book and then also bringing it up to some Glock people who were not far so less excited <laughs> about right. the book and told me yeah. not to bring it up. Yeah. Um, so I have it somewhere. I really do need to read back through it. When, I, when it first came out, I was brand new um, kind of in my world and, and Glocks were not 
uh, my area of expertise. Uh, right. If you guys follow my career at all, you know that I did do the first major Glock exhibition uh, in a in a museum uh, back in uh, 2016. So they certainly became something I was I became passionate about uh, more modern technologies, experimentation, and synthetics um, in, in the post World War II period has become a more recent interest of mine. But um, yeah, back when I first started, I was one of those people that studied really early technology. Mm -hmm. And I was actually terrified when I uh, came to Cody, because even though I'd worked for the Smithsonian and studied firearms, like macro history of firearms, so I studied at all of the, you know, the big history of firearms. So I was very familiar with 20th century technology. Uh, I taught weapons portion of a military history course where I was required to know about it. Um, I didn't know how to speak gun speak, if you will. Uh, right. So I was really scared because I was this like, you know, city slicker, uh, you know, former ballroom dancer, fast talker that went out to Wyoming. And I was like, I don't I didn't carry back then, you know, I was just, I studied it, you know, I didn't, you know, partake mm -hmm. in it. I, I, you know, I learned how to shoot and I took it from a clinical sense and I enjoyed target shooting, but I never really considered myself um, a part of that. And so I didn't know how to do gun speak <laughs> when I came out and I was really scared uh, that they were going to really call, you know, call me out if I didn't know what I was talking about. So it took me a little bit to get more into the mid 20th, late 20th century, uh, and yes, I did say late 20th century. I know it makes a lot of people cringe, but, um, you know, so it's it's something I, I'm much more interested in now. And I really should read the book um, and go back through it. I have it, but I skimmed it because it wasn't really anything I was interested in at the time. Right. right. I found it interesting and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, that book, but um, it's one I recommend, especially if people are curious about the relationship between firearm companies and the Second Amendment. And some of the things that sometimes firearm companies do out of their own preservation, that's also pro second amendment at the same time. Now, whether that's active or passive, it is probably passive quite honestly, because we're dealing with a business, but some of those mm -hmm. dynamics is interesting. And that book's also the glory days of a shot show. Uh, what a lot of people call the glory days. That was, there was crazy things that once happened uh, at the shot shows. And uh, some of the stories in there are, are just amazing with that. Um, so G-Web's out there. Uh, he says, what are some of the best gun libraries you've seen, both available to the public and private? So let's see. I mean, Cody's is great. <laughs> um, but I think one of the best collections that's a gun library is private, and that's Reed Knight's collection. Um I don't know if I, anyone knows what I'm talking about, but that's a uh, Reed Knight Knight's Armament, uh, his own because is a part of gun history <laughs> too. Um, Reed coll privately collects and has his own private museum at the front of the manufacturing facility that uh, is not publicly accessible, but you can call ahead and do background checks and get approved for a private tour. Um, but Reed is constantly perfecting and refining and growing his collection. And like in the one room, He's got, you know, the Hall of American Arms and he's trying so hard to find, you know, kind of one of all of the major variations uh, on U.S. firearms from the earliest days in the colony up through today. Uh, plus, he's got like 22 Gatlings, I think, at this point. Uh, he's wow. got a Popo gun. Um, there's only two or three known in the world. Uh, he's got Gardner guns. I mean, he's got stuff that is so rare. Um, that he's got one or the, you know, one of the only or the only uh, in the country. And then he's got a, um, 
Hall of Modern Arms uh, gallery, which is basically every example that he can acquire of modern uh, automatic technology from around the world. Um, and then he also being good friends with Eugene Stoner, it, he's got Stoner's or Stoner's office recreated in his wow. um, in his museum, and he's got all of Stoner's original papers. And then like he's got like he had a whole deal with like Colt, and and so he's got like serial number one through ten of a lot of those guns. And I mean, it is. I mean, he has done a great job, and he's constantly growing it uh, all the time. And um, so Reed's probably got the best one I've seen. I'm sure there are also really amazing ones in the country. The Smithsonian's collection is actually really good. Unfortunately, it's public, but it's private. Uh, most There's only 200 or so Smithsonian or guns from the Smithsonian collection on display uh, throughout the entire Smithsonian network. But they personally have about 7,000 firearms in their collection. They also wow. have a pretty large edge weapons collection. Um, I spent about three years researching in that collection, and it is really good. But um, you know, the curator is awesome, but the, you know, the, the collection is not on display, but it's really impressive. I've never seen the J.M. Davis collection, but it is, I still think the largest. Um, and did he say America or can I also go into other countries? Um, I don't think he stipulated. So yeah, if there's people certainly do travel abroad. So if there's Royal other places, Armories. yeah. Royal Armories in Leeds amazing collection <laughs> uh royal armories they i don't know I, I you have to fill out a lot of paperwork to actually see the armories but they have a museum um that i actually haven't seen the museum i've seen the collection but not the museum i didn't have enough time uh when i was there for a day but they've got a an extraordinary collection they've got a lot of it online accessible online which is pretty fantastic and they've got procedures put in place where like they actually when something comes in they fire it most of the time if it's in a condition that that's uh, possible so they fire it and and record uh video so you can see some of these things that like won't be able to be fired like once they move into a museum collection and so they've got a you know virtual record of that um i'm trying to think in the u.s i do know that if you get a chance the dutch national military museum also has a really impressive uh, collection of military and uh, military weapons, um, a, lot, a couple of nuclear things that are pretty, like they. I was like there, and they were like pushing this giant, like you know, nuclear weapon through a gallery. And, like, cool, 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 cool. Uh, <laughs> obviously deactivated, sure. but like, I was just like, oh, cool. Uh, they had like an example on the Cold War. Um, yeah. Don't hit a bump. It's <laughs> kind of funny as they were like pushing it through. Um, let me think. So Cody Smithsonian. Reed's Knights uh, Institute of Military Technology. Uh, J.M. Davis is a large museum, NRA museum, but even that's not open to the public anymore, um, which is a real bummer. Uh, I don't think it's been open for two years. Um, and the, I think the Springfield one's still open, but that's not where um, the bulk of the collection is. It's at Fairfax. Right. Um, so those are probably the best ones I've seen. But then I'm always amazed. <laughs> I'm in a lot of collectors organizations where like I just like turn a corner and like they've got some super impressive collections but they're usually more specialized right uh, for a specific thing but overall gun history those are kind of the key ones in my opinion right um <clears throat> take a minute since you did mention jm davis just to say that uh what not this coming weekend but next weekend will be the largest gun show in the world in tulsa the wanamaker tulsa arms show there'll be quite a few of us there covering that show is media so if you have a chance that definitely needs to be on your bucket list and as ashley brought up the jm davis museum 15 20 minutes away um we actually stay in claremore usually when we go to that show um 
and Claremore is where the Jam Davis Museum is at. It's an amazing, amazing stop if you have a chance. Um, you can't possibly see everything there in one trip. I don't know how many times I've been and I see new stuff all the time. Um, probably because they rotate stuff in and out. That's probably part of it. Um, so with that, I, that's one of the things I was going to I was gonna bring up. Calaveras here sort of beat me to it in a way. He says, do you have any idea why the uh, Smithsonian doesn't have more on display? Do they prioritize it according to floor space or? Yeah. Um, so the Smithsonian doesn't have a ton of artifacts in general on display. Um, I know that probably sounds really weird, but most museums uh, are happy if they've got 3% of their artifacts on display. Whoa. Um, now let me, let me explain that like a lot of big organizations like this, like there's a whole room of like buttons at the Smithsonian. So when, or the World War II Museum, for example, in New Orleans, like they've got these huge collections, but, uh, and so the collections, when you say 3% also could include like 30,000 buttons. Um, but you know, each one of those is an object. Um, so the Smithsonian in general, especially the American History Museum went for a much more interpretive uh, approach when they renovated it and so uh, a lot of and this is something a lot of museums do they move more towards the immersive experience um the educational experience rather than an object-centric experience and so um you know there may be other underlying reasons i don't know um but i do know that in general they don't have a ton of stuff on display in the grand scheme of their collections um and then the american history museum when it got renovated um, really changed in terms of scope. And so uh, really the main area where you'd see firearms would be in the Price of Freedom Gallery, uh, which is a military history gallery. And they do pop up in other, in other spaces. But uh, it's kind of frustrating because that, you know, makes it seem like, you know, American firearms history is only defined by its wars, which it's not. Um, but yeah, it's just like most museums are like that. Um, and what I would love to see, I actually, I probably spoiler alert for a video that's coming out I did with Ian uh, in the next month. You know, my personal, uh, you know, vision for museums is I do love the immersive experience. I do love the interpretive experience. Um, so for me, it's almost like you need to build the museum that has like the, the history, the overall history for people who may not be interested in the technical, but they want to know about, you know, the overall time frame or mission of the institution and then having an accessible publicly visible library if you will but of 3d artifacts um so not just books but now you know a gun library like we have in cody downstairs you know it's not perfect but it's at least allowed us to get a lot of things on display where there wasn't room necessarily upstairs and so it's just kind of a thing that happens uh, with museums they get they're overwhelmed by the number of things and then the that they have they're understaffed we're all understaffed we're all underpaid uh in the museum world and so and they're limited by budget and uh you know museums do not have as much money as you think <laughs> as you think right. they do um and so they do the best they can and if the mission of the institution is not you know guns and guns only you know they've got to kind of couch them do i think they could put more guns on display oh hell yeah but <laughs> Right. But I, I just see it across the board. The museum field moved more away from uh, like almost like science exhibits. So then you go to like the health, you know, science museums or the natural history museums that are very, you know, here is the object. Here's the mineral. Here's the fossil. Uh, history museums have moved away from that uh, for the most part and moved much more to here's the overall history, which a lot of people don't like. Uh, I know there's a lot of hatred towards the World War II Museum because it feels too simple uh, of a history going through. Um, but it's also one of the most I think it's like the number two museum in the country. So 
I guess they play to their clientele to some extent. And that's why in Cody, our clientele, you know, is people who want to see the guns. So we made right. sure that happened. Right. Um, I did see someone ask about the NRA Museum. As far as I know, they're not open right now. Uh, maybe I'm totally wrong. So I apologize in advance if I'm wrong and that they've reopened. But I know for a period of 2020, they were um, not open uh, for staffing and all of that. I, so I'm sure Springfield is still open and I'm sure the one in New Mexico is still open. But I know that the headquarters um, had uh, their doors closed and maybe they're open to private tours and that kind of thing. Or maybe they've reopened and I just don't know what I'm talking about. But I do know uh, for a period of 2021 or 2020, at least it's it's not been. Uh, open. Uh, Calaveras, speaking of Cody, says, how many artifacts are on display at Cody? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I also just got really sad that I was done with my <laughs> I was just like, oh, it's empty. <laughs> um, so Cody has about 7,000, although we, when we renovated, um, we sent a lot of loans back um, because there were a lot of duplicates in the collection and a lot of things that, you know, you know, how many, you know, do you need 20 examples of something that's the exact same thing? Maybe not. Um, and so if we had a loan that had never been on display, I mean, that's not fair to the person who owns it. Like you'd rather go to a museum where it's going to get displayed or let them, you know, enjoy it. Um, so we probably come down a little bit in that number, but not by a ton. And we've got, I keep saying we, and no, I don't work for the Cody anymore, although I'm still involved in the podcast and doing some things for them on the side, but uh, I am not a full-time employee at the museum anymore um but they they have about i think 4500 to 5000 on display uh, which is pretty good numbers and most of the stuff that's not on display is duplicates things that are in really bad condition that aren't stable enough for display um and so yeah it's more than 50 percent of that collection is on and then we had we have about ten thousand rounds of ammunition on display as well so mm -hmm. we we did a good job at getting a chunk out when we <laughs> when we were there and i think there was about 1500 to 2000 more guns on display in the renovated cody museum as there were in the in the previous one wow Contrary yeah, to popular yeah. belief, we get screamed at all the time. Uh, back when I was there, Danny still gets screamed at that we've taken all the guns off display. And I'm like, there are literally thousands more on display. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes sometimes that happens just moving things around, right? Um, you know, I've, I've experienced that with J.M. Davis. And, and talking about having multiple multiples on display, that's nice in the museum if you have access to that because you've got multiple displays you can you can do right if you've got displays for let's say a certain specific thing and then you've got the kind of like you were talking about world war ii right if you're talking about a certain platoon or a certain whatever group and they use these firearms you could have that display and then over here you, you've got one for the general world war ii as well you know specific campaigns yeah. and so it is nice um you know you were talking about um sending some of the ones back that were on loan um before we close out here we're kind of getting toward the top of the hour uh kind of give us a little bit of backstory since you've worked in these museums how does the procurement and stuff like that generally work for museums oh it depends on the museum um cody was always really sad because we had to turn more away than we could accept because the collection was so large and we ran, were running out of room um but the acquisition process for us uh because cody was so well known is that we would get multiple emails a day 
of people that wanted to loan or donate the museum or the, like some of their collection or one of their one of their pieces. Uh, unfortunately, there's like a weeding out system. So most museums nowadays do not accept things with restrictions, especially collection the size of Cody. It's just not feasible. I mean, it's it's a train wreck when, you know, this person wants two of their firearms out on display at all times. Uh, well, that's not good for the collection. You know, at some point you have to let that thing rest for a little bit. Um, and so we had a lot of those. And I know our registrars worked really hard on trying to like contact people, you know, from like 20 years ago and being like, hey, this is a really weird restriction and your your object really needs to be in dark storage for a little bit, um, you know, fading or any of that stuff that happens over time. So for us, it was more just waiting, sitting and waiting. If there's something we actively needed, then we would go out and, and seek it out and let people know we needed it. Um, I know that a lot of museums are moving away from loans if they can avoid it because it's uh, becomes a uh, we become a storage facility for other people's stuff. Obviously, if something's incredibly rare, you want to do a special exhibition, um, you know, or it's you know, it's so rare, you want to make sure that you can have it, even if the person's not ready to part with it um, completely. I mean, that's that. Those are some exceptions to the rule, but uh, you know, that we're trying to be more respectful in the museum world of like if we can't take it and be proper custodians of it and give it kind of the space that it needs, and it's not fair uh, for us. And so we tried when I was curator and I know Danny tries when we have the time, but like right now is Danny. Um, and I think he just hired an assistant, you know, so people think there's like 20 staff members. Like it, there were like three of us when we ran right. the museum. Um, and so that's how that works. Um, I do I work for a lot of other museums around the country. Part of my consulting business is rebuilding museums. And so some of them, I have to go and help them find stuff because they don't have the collection. But a lot of museums do get a lot of stuff offered to them all the time, especially even like local ones where there's one staff member in the entire historic home, because then you get a lot of local people wanting to, to give their stuff to a museum. The biggest misconception I would say about museum acquisition is that we have money to buy things. Um, you know, even some of the biggest museums in the country do not have money. Like Cody, we barely, sometimes we do, we have an acquisition fund, but that is a, like a fund that once you spend it goes away, unless somebody gives right. money to the acquisition fund. Um, you know, it's not like it's constantly replenished every year. And so we get that all the time. Uh, well, we did get that all the time in Cody where people are like, well, just ask your people to pay for it. I'm like what people, we don't have people. Um, so we sometimes, and usually if you see stuff at the auction, uh, stuff getting purchased by a, a museum at auction it's it's usually little things um, that they're trying to use to fill things in that won't go for high value or if it is a big high value thing it's been vetted by multiple people within the institution and, and the money is there before it goes but that's very rare now you said you worked in in some museums or at some museums helping them out with more more modern stuff how does that work when you've got modern firearms that are under regulation at this point um, how, does, how does your museum handle a lot of that stuff? Or maybe even like full autos or whatever. Yeah. Cody has licensing. Uh, for example, we have a person whose job it is to manage our FFL and our SOT. And ah, okay. Like. okay. Uh, but most museums don't have that luxury um and or their mission's not that you know guns so they get guns um it's complicated is the answer and i've had to back out of a lot of spaces we'll just say that uh, <laughs> i didn't see it um but the because the issue is is there's this general assumption that museums have amnesty over firearms laws and in europe in a lot of countries they do uh, in england they have amnesty they can collect wow. whatever they want um if they're a museum now they have a very thorough definition of what a museum is 
that's kind of the rub uh, with coming up with one in the, in the country. But not only was this misconception perpetuated by museum people, it was also perpetuated by certain ATF agents for years. Now, I'm not talking about the overarching, but um, there were ATF agents that would tell people to give, you know, if it was an unregistered machine gun, that they could give it to a museum. And that's not true. Um, the only option, and it was not directed specifically at museums, it was directed at government entities, and some museums just happen to be government entities, that they could take things on Form 10s. Um, so what we always tried to do, if somebody had something, you know, we couldn't take it, um, but we would reach out to Springfield Armory, you know, up in you know, Springfield or the Smithsonian or whatever, um, because we weren't allowed to take it. So uh, yes, if you are not any type of government entity, whether it's local, state, federal, whatever, uh, you cannot accept guns that are illegal to the civilian. Um, you can get licensing for certain things. Um, but like even, for example, the law letter, I mean, I know there's certain ways around it, but we want the historical version of it, not necessarily the, the manufactured right, right. version. Uh, but even a law letter doesn't apply to the museum. Trust me, we tried uh, with the Glock exhibition, actually. Um, and we talked to the ATF and the ATF, you know, we worked back and forth, but the law letter, according to what the law says, um, doesn't apply to us because we're not demonstrating it. Um, and we always took the attitude of we go by what it says, not by what somebody says is okay, because that person may not be there tomorrow. <laughs> um, and so it's a big, it's a big issue. Um, it's something I do talk about anytime I have a chance to talk to politicians, both Democrats and Republicans, because I can't tell you how many times I've talked to a Democrat politician where I mention that these things have to get destroyed because they can't be on display. And they're like, wait, what? You know, I talked to about universal background checks with, um, with DC project, which is a group of, uh, women representing all 50 States, uh, that die, uh, light or Mueller, started uh we get to talk to democrat and republican politicians alike uh from our region when we go to dc once a year and uh i brought it up a bunch and like literally no matter where you sat on the gun argument they were like wait wait, wait what we can't preserve these things um so to me it should not be a political thing you know if you love guns you want to see them preserved forever and if you hate guns they're off the street and they're on display and they're in a safe place mm -hmm. so that's my that's my elevator pitch <laughs> no I, and i agree I mean, the sad thing is, like, you, you know, you know, there's going to be people that try to skirt the rules with, you know, a museum. Well, I have a museum. It's like, yeah, yeah sure you exactly. do. Sure you do. Yeah. Okay. That's been the biggest <laughs> issue that we've had is trying to come up with what that means because there's an accreditation process, but only 5% of all museums in the country are accredited. Right. Um, so that doesn't really, that still has the pro same problem as, you know, a finite number of government entity museums. Right. So. It's not an easy answer, but I know that Danny and myself and everyone in my field tries to talk to as many people as possible so that maybe an answer can be made. Um, and I will say, I know this isn't going to be a popular statement, but at least the people I worked with at the ATF, they do want to see something change, um, but they just don't know how to do it. And as we know from some of their proposed amendments, it's not surprising. Yeah. I like uh, <laughs> I like G Web's fix here. He says uh, it's a great reason to re just remove those arbitrary laws that do nothing to protect anyone, only hinder the saving of history like this. So that's how you fix it. You just remove all of the uh, regulations from the ATF completely, and we're done. We can have. Whatever I think that that is a want. very realistic goal. <laughs> yeah. so, so there we go. I don't know what the hashtag is for that movement, folks, but uh, somebody come up with that. Uh, we're going to take a look at the poll right quick before we uh, before we get out of here. The question was, what type of firearm history do you find most interesting? And with 62 percent, it's 20th century. And with World War One, World War Two, 
That doesn't surprise me, honestly. <laughs> uh, number two uh, on that uh, poll at 21% is the 19th century. Uh, 18th century at 8% and then other also at, at 8%. So the vast majority of that, 19th and 20th century, that's uh, not surprising there. Anything with that surprise you, Ashley? No, uh, there's been a growing number of collectors that are doing 20th century World War One, World War Two. It's it, it was considered maybe 15 years ago, 10 to 10 years ago to be not historical enough, but it is. I mean, so there's a growing, growing number of those uh, people. And I mean, if you think about it, even early AR-15s uh, can follow under the uh, Curio and Relics list, early M16s. So it's it's a lot further away than we thought <laughs> we think right. sometimes. Right. Uh, so let me take a second here before we uh, get out of here, Mr. Ashley. If folks want to follow you, uh, what you do, learn more, where can they do that? Yeah, so I am really active on my Instagram. Uh, I'm at History and Heels, like you said at the beginning of it. And then I my Facebook is at official Ashley Lubinsky. Uh, have fun spelling that. If you get close on Google, it should take you there. I have a Twitter, but I don't tweet because I think it's incredibly toxic. So I, if you follow me on Twitter, you're going to be like really disappointed. But for the most part, you can see what I'm doing um, there. I also pop up in a lot of these podcasts. I have uh, my podcast with Danny called History Unloaded. We just had a house lean episode and then uh, we're going to do a mini season between Thanksgiving and New Year's and uh, talk about a lot of holiday firearms including Die Hard which <laughs> will be our kind of mini season finale on Christmas Eve and we've got Larry from ISS coming on for that one so you can find us all on there and then um, you know check out some of the museums I'm working with one of the big ones right now is the LA Police Museum and there's an amazing collection of Browning Matthew Browning firearms up in Montana that I'm working with. Awesome. Thanks for uh, thanks for jumping in. Enjoyed the conversation. I think the folks in the live chat did. It was uh, fun. I had a lot of fun. A reminder to those that have went this far in the audio podcast world. Bless you, your troopers. Uh, but remember that can you can join us live at any time and ask questions and participate. Uh, as for this one, we're out of here. So until next time, don't forget to chain fire freedom. <laughs>